0: What's up, know it alls You get stuff you don't need to know. I'm Jay. Let's get down to it. So once again, I have with me today an excellent comic writer and creator. Uh he is the writer and creator of a comic that is also on Kickstarter called Raven Nevermore. His name is Nuno Shea. Nuno, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me, man. Uh no, it's it's my pleasure to have you here. Uh first before we get started, like I said, um, you know you know his comic is on kickstarter and as of today or i don't know if it was late yesterday the 14th or the 15th you uh you hit your goal right the
1: goal has been reached yes the first one has been reached so it was a very good uh very good wake up for me
0: yeah yeah no that's awesome because uh, i contributed to it so i'm definitely looking forward to a comic coming my way Uh, nice thank you so much man Oh, no, my pleasure. Uh, I was cruising around Kickstarter. I saw it and it just it definitely spiked my interest and I wanted to get it. And I definitely wanted to have you on the show. So usually when I talk to, you know, comic creators and writers and artists, first question I always love to ask is, you know, as a kid or or a teenager, young adult, like what comics did you read? Like what were some of your favorites? What are some of your uh, inspirations?
1: You know, it's funny because these, the, that kind of question is the is one that will derail me very often because uh, I don't let go of certain memories. And I'm sure there's uh, plenty of comic book fans that sort of have that same uh, dynamic with their thinking. Right. Like they can they, they know exactly mm-hmm. where they've been. They know they know the year. Right. Sometimes like you'll remember the cover, the exact cover. Uh, and I kind of have those stories because one way or the other, all of those uh, have influenced me um through the years, but we're talking about decades now. So, I mean, the first, the very first uh, comic I remember as a child and uh, because it was like when I started going into comic book shops, my uh, my mom uh, worked at the seamstress uh, downtown and she she would take us in for like lunch just to kind of, uh, she'd be part-time so we'd kill our four hours there, you know, but I found this comic book shop uh, down a few blocks and uh, I was just wandering around during lunch, bored, you know, I I think I was eight or nine (laughs) at the time too. and yeah, I found this place that's going through the uh the back bins, right? And I, I kinda stumbled upon the turn a teenage mutant ninja turtle. So I was a big fan of the cartoon at the time. And um and yeah, it was issue six. It was the le- the leatherhead issue. I remember okay. it distinctly. And I remembered it because it wasn't um leatherhead wasn't the same as the cartoon and then i thought mm-hmm. wait this isn't this is like a whole different story it's a whole different like universe right that they're telling there it was the archie version of the of the series so for me it was that one it was new mutants 58 man i still remember it was the blue cover with the pegasus on it and it was oh. just before the fall of the mutants and those two memories never go away from me so that was kind of my gateway and then from there it was just the weekly visits i eventually learned that that culture right as a mm-hmm. kid and of course you then get addicted to it uh, as you get into your <laughs> teens because it's like you got to go back every Wednesday you know absolutely uh, to get your back to get your issues but yeah all my allowance m- uh, money man went uh went to that comic book shop and uh different prices back then of course as you know
0: oh yeah <laughs> but,
1: uh, that was it that was those are the big ones um nice yeah I think it's from I mean you'll probably laugh at me at this point nah. but it's like the one that was like the series though like mm-hmm. there's this there's also a series that everyone has right and it's sure for me, it was a trip, too. I'm from Canada, but we had mm-hmm. some family in uh, Massachusetts at the time. So we were visiting down uh, during summer break, during uh, when school was off. And so we go down to Massachusetts. I'm bored. I'm a bored kid, of course, as uh, all adolescents are when they're like <laughs> 11, 10. Right. So right. Uh, I'm wandering around with my parents. They take me to this grocery store, and they're in the magazine rack. It's Dark Hawk, uh, number one to number three. And for me, it was like it was the first number ones I was kind of jumping into. Mm-hmm. And I remember the Darkhawk number one had like the these uh the paper the um, the box cutter uh, had sliced into the first covers. It was like three or four slices in there. I didn't care, right? Back in those <sighs> days, I, I didn't care. That's <laughs> for right. me, it was we like the care. first comic, no. you know. <laughs> so that was and that to t- today, I still consider myself the greatest, the biggest Darkhawk fan out there. I had a fan site for a while there. I've got like custom toys, all the cards, you know, any comic that he appeared in. Man, I would chase these things down, man. Custom art, like I am the guy for Darkhawk. So. <laughs> Laugh all you want, but that's my gateway.
0: (laughs) No, absolutely no. I mean, I think I I think like a lot of people have kind of like the typical I mean I still remember going to my local 7 Eleven and pulling off the rack, like it was it was a Superman just because I recognized him. You know, I was six years old, I didn't recognize anybody else. But I think after that, the second comic I absolutely remember getting, and I think it was number I think it was number 12, it was Shade the Changing Man. Number twelve because I looked at the co- I looked at the cover. I had no idea what was going on, but it was so interesting. And I got into it. I read it. I read a couple of issues, and then years later, I went back and, like, from you know somehow that kind of morphed from like Shade the Changing Man. I found my way into like DC sort of like Vertigo with uh, yeah, like okay. Sandman and all that stuff, and it just took off from there. So. Yeah, I get it. Like you find that fringe character, and you just just it's a connection, and it's it's awesome.
1: So, I mean, here's a question for you. I mean, not that not to flip this back to you, but I mean, I find mm-hmm. it interesting. You said so. You were okay. Hold on, you were six when you found the Superman, but you weren't. Yeah. I mean, how old were you when you stumbled onto Shade? Uh, I was probably about seven or eight. Oh my god. So, I mean, looking back, because like I uh, I'm uh, surface familiar with the character, but I. It being did it not go straight to vertical, or was it a DC book when it came out?
0: This this was the DC book, this was like the first run. Um, yeah, you know, so was still um, like child safe, (laughs) it was absolutely like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was kind of like a much cleaner ROM shade than um, what we see later on. (laughs) Yeah, it was like like I said, it was just um, you know, the way the 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 artwork, uh, because it was like that late 70s heading into the early 80s. Very realistic artwork, but there was still some Blake, still some of that like 60s, 70s trippiness to it. Yeah, And I guess like as a kid, I was just like, wow, colors. <laughs> <laughs> and I read the story and it was a pretty cool story. And, you know, from there, I think, to, like I said, years later when mm-hmm. Ver, you know, Vertigo came out and they had, you know, Sandman Theater and they and they had mm-hmm. Shade the Changing Man i was like oh i think i like this one a lot better
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah you grow into it i i I have a similar story where where it comes to uh sandman so i get um i got volume one i think as a christmas gift man i i'm remembering 1994 but that feels like super early to me like i feel like trades weren't around (laughs) yet but i feel like sandman uh like, those were the first 10 trades I had. I got I got the first one in, I think it was 94. It was before I went off to university. I left the house. So, so it's like one of the last Christmases I had with the family. But, yeah, and then I got two to ten, somewhere in the 90s as well. I'm like, that feels crazy to me because, again, I had trades in my head now because I kind of fell off at a of comics in uh, 96, 97, and then I came back to them way into, like, I 2007, when Darkhawk appeared in Nova, of course. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> during the Annihilation run. But it's the... Uh, yeah, those comics, I was 16 at the time when I read the Sandman and they were blowing my mind because uh, the content itself was mature. Right. I here I am coming mm-hmm. off of like some new mutants, uh, Darkhawk Hawk uh, run, some new warriors. Right. And then X-Men for sure. I freaking love the X-Men. The image comics, of course, and you know, back in the early 90s, you bought every image comic you could get because that's what destroy the market (laughs) but uh yeah and then leading and then it took me to and those were like gritty they were mature but not well crafted mature you know like they were it was a bunch of of young artists trying to be mature writers you know and uh it didn't always land um but then you got the Neil the Neil Gaiman's uh uh Neil Gaiman Sandman run and it's uh completely man it's just vertical right i mean it opened me up to vertical, and then you start exploring all the other vertical titles and it's like geez okay this is this is my this is my jam this is where i need to be so huge influence from that yeah
0: oh yeah absolutely and i think around that time too like for me like the early mid 90s i was kind of i was starting to really sour on it you know image with 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 what -hmm. they did for better or for worse and Mm -hmm. You know, for people that listen to the show, you know, uh, my friends, John and Alan came on, we talked about that. The one that brought me back and I talked about this, you know, maybe a year ago was Neil Gaiman's, um, death, the high cost of living. Because for me, it's like, I had never, mm-hmm. I had never seen a comic like that. And I was like, oh my God, like it's, it's, it's gritty. The art was, and I, I, for the life of me now, I cannot remember who the artist is. I'm kicking myself here. Cause it was like gorgeous art and it was just, I was like, wow, comics actually can really be good. And I think then from there I found kingdom come and I was like, okay, you know, oh, geez, Sounds you, awesome. you, you guys <laughs> suck me right back. in. I'm right back in. But, yeah. um, Oh, yeah, sorry. You yeah, know,
1: no, I was going to piggyback on that because of the, like, I, I don't remember the interior artist for the Sandman stuff, but the cover artist, like Dave McKeon, like for me, mm-hmm. those visuals, I, I mean, I went into fine art. That was the, my, my main, uh, study in university. Um, but that art—it was a mixed media approach. It's that it wasn't typical to any other cover out there uh, for superheroes, especially. But mm-hmm. just in general, I didn't see that kind of art on covers. Even the uh, Sandman Mystery Theater, like they—they they had really unique looking covers, you know. And uh, something about that, uh, because in my brain, I, w- I knew I was going into fine art, and but I wanted to be an illustrator for fantasy, like tabletop, you know. But but my brain was like marrying those two different uh aspects i guess or approaches mm-hmm. to art and i was seeing that on a cover and i i mean it's hard for me to say that's not an interest like i for the raven evermore covers even like i really wanted to have something akin to that because mm-hmm. i wanted to call back to that spirit um i kind of had a I, I kind of uh reached a middle ground like a compromise with uh where i went like i i found an artist from um um south america that had a a bit of like a woodcut style uh but he he could digitize it he was a woodcut Mm -hmm. artist but uh, like barnards but he was able to digitize or do it in digital in vector and uh and so it had that a a bit of that fine art spirit but in the cover but it wasn't really like a superhero cover but i wanted to be kind of like iconic and i don't know it's just a part of that spirit you know i wanted i wanted to capture it and it's something that i wanted to keep on trying to capture with the uh the books that get produced for
0: raven evermore Absolutely. And I guess that's going to kind of lead me into what I was going to talk about next is, I mean, when I was scrolling through Kickstarter, uh, that's what caught my eye was the the comic or I'm sorry, the cover art that I did see for it. Because for me, it kind of harkened back to like mm. things like, you know, Sandman Mystery Theater um, nice. and and also kind of the crow, too. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is a great time for you. You know, talk to us a little bit about Raven Nevermore, you know, kind of give us, you know, maybe that elevator pitch like like what is this comic about and what inspired you to write this
1: yeah so he you know it's funny because like the way you lead into these things because it's like we've already talked and like planned this out but it, we honestly have not <laughs> but you mentioned the crow right and yes. uh i mean that's an obvious distinction you see the crow the raven but i mean i'm going to tell you like very uh i was very explicitly uh, uh connected to that to the crow. I remember like the the movie itself mm-hmm. was huge. It changed like it was just it was so influential to me back then too like so much so that I was part of the video yearbook committee in high school and I I had long hair at the time I know heart of the leaves I'm bald now but it's the uh <laughs> but I I dressed up as the the crow and we did a music video to the uh to the crow to the uh, Cure song that's on the soundtrack and mm-hmm. Um, and so for me like that always stuck to me and the idea of the whole the it's strange to say but like the face paint uh, aspect of it and the the whole identity change and like what is identity and who are you like after certain events and uh, that has always stuck with me and there's a direct connection between uh, something that happens in the movie with issue one of Raven Evermore where it's a very dark scene um, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's um, it speaks to uh something that i've never talked about actually publicly so I, you know I, I would love to actually get a chance to speak about it here because uh go for you're, you're kind of seeding all the right things you know and <laughs> <laughs> so i'm gonna roll with it man so roll, go for it yeah so there's the dark uh, scene and I, I don't want to spoil the issue one either but at the same time you'll know it when you get to it maybe but you'll sure. but what i really want to kind of touch on is that raven evermore for me was uh an experiment or an exercise not an experiment that's an exercise mm-hmm. um When I was kind of uh, crafting what I wanted to put together, I wanted it to sort of uh, tie back to certain parts of my past. So whether they're my influences, whether it's my life, just like these different things that inspired me, Um, because kind of like in Sandman. you have this uh, not salmon uh, in well in yes yeah, salmon where you have sure. this uh shared world right you have the dream world you have all these different fictional characters that come together and they all exist together and and the mm-hmm. stories that are told aren't necessarily focused on dream you know they're um they're their stories told within the world uh and they revolve around the dream uh around dream but it's not really about dream you know and so there's a bit of a world building craft going on there that um then feeds back into that main character, and so part of that essence is also kind of in Raven Evmore. So, from a very high level, like the pitch on the surface, when you uh, read the first issue, it's a it's it's an elite cop that's uh, up against the uh, the local mob. It's in a dark fantasy setting, so uh, mm-hmm. there's a bit of uh, you know there's there's different things. Like it's kind of um, feels like our world, but it's just slightly off, and that's okay. part of the setting itself that this story takes place in i wanted to feel i wanted it to feel grounded like it like it was something that was familiar and this might have been like again in hindsight i kind of look back at how i wrote the series and i was like <laughs> probably a, a weird entry in because it sort of pitches the story as this mundane story of an elite lawman going up against like a drug a, a drug uh boss you know but mm-hmm. every issue that follows after that it's almost like it peels back a layer of what reality was uh what reality is not only to the reader but the reader is sort of on the journey with the protagonist as well as the Ooh. protagonist comes to discover that uh what he believes is real or the truth uh he's sort of living a, a lie to some degree and he has to get to the bottom of what that is and um and he and so the idea of the raven nevermore it's sort of an entity within him that uh it's trapped and it wants to be free and that's uh, the main character comes to discover that it's possibly something like that, but he doesn't know how to access that point of him in order to unlock those secrets and discover like in discovering um, himself. He, hopefully it leads to him discovering what it, what it's going to take to save his city from this uh, malevolent force that's going to be unlocked on the world. So it's um, it's filled with a bunch of little seeds. I mentioned turtles uh, at the start of this, yes. the idea of leatherhead issue six, the second mm-hmm. issue of Raven Evermore features uh it's not an accident that it features <laughs> a, a character called Mute, and uh, he's a lizard man, right? He's, <laughs> he's a reptilian uh, villain that, uh, that the, the protagonist has to go up against, and he encounters him in a sewer. That's the cover of the turtles. So nice. it's not necessarily part of the story that these pieces are there, right? But they're very intentionally put there because... There's a weird way to weave things, man. Hopefully you can, like, put something together and, like, <laughs> you can come out of this with, like, some coherency. But the uh, in some way, it goes back to the Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman with the whole world-building aspect of the stories right. existing beyond the protagonist. And the, the ideas themselves become as important as uh, the characters you get introduced to along the way. Because uh, my focus is to build a, a world here, you know, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: not just the story of Raven Evermore, but... I have plans that go well beyond this and um part of the setting like the, the setting I created is something called the breach space and okay. there's a whole story there too but I, it was just a world I created because I want to be able to tell stories that all were all connected even if they seem like they couldn't be connected I promise there are things that will connect all of these things together and maybe I'm thinking way too far out there you know but that's part of the whole uh the influence of tabletop in my past and um Any kind of series that took its time to world build and make the reader feel like they were part of not just the story, but that they themselves were already creating stories beyond the story. And I really wanted to kind of tap into that um, creative device because that's what made me inspired to like get into writing, get into art, get into visioning products, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, yeah, I kind of
0: So that's kind of a driver for me behind the scenes. No, I mean, that's great. And, you know, it's it's on the surface, you know, pretty much like you're saying is, is we're seeing a comic, but you know, for you, this is, this is the start of like a a world or a universe that you can expand upon. And you mentioned tabletop gaming and a lot of the elements that you were talking about with the world building and some of the dark elements and things like that. Um, made me think of like white wolf games, um, like vampire, the masquerade and things like that which I had always loved because yes, there's this nice universe that's there, but there's so much that be created within it, you know, and it, it sounds like, you know, this is what we're getting. Like this is, this is kind of our gateway into this, into this world that you are creating. Um, but you did also mention too that, excuse me, that, um, you know, you kind of drew on like some elements in your life, and I was very, very lucky at uh, a Comic Con out here. It was East Coast Comic Con. Uh, I met John Obar. Um, you know, he was there. He was like, I was kicking myself because I didn't have like any issues of The Crow with me. I was like, how did this happen to me? Um, <laughs> and it was it was so funny because like I wanted to meet him. Uh, he was selling he was selling prints and signing it and everything. And it was so funny because I would walk by his table and he had a little sign up. It's like, you know, smoke break, be back in 20 minutes. Well, I circled the table for like almost an hour (laughs) and a half (laughs) and he finally came back and I bought a print. It was an awesome print. Uh, You know, Eric, it was like Eric Draven in the woods. It had like a nice sort of like dark blue sheen to it. It was gorgeous. And, you know, he was very, very nice. And he was just, you know, talking about, you know, what he kinda drew upon in his life and in just kind of the world around him. Um, you know, and you know, he kind of said like he he tried to use the crow to help kind of sort of like exercise some demons or exercise, oh, you know, right. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that, you know, maybe not going that far exercising some some demons from you, but do do you find like it's it's creating this universe and and tapping into some things that happen to your life is this sort of a way of like uh i don't know healing or getting it out there like is that kind of like an experience for you when you're writing the comic
1: like it absolutely is though it's not even that it's not that far-fetched to say it that's pretty much it it's because like writing this at the time uh, it was 2008 when i started to think of doing the story as opposed to world building. So I was, I've been Mm -hmm. world building since 2001 or something since I literally world built so that I could uh, get through university, like just the way I learned the way I retained information, I would, um, I would learn things like philosophy things, but I would be building the world to the philosophy so that I'd be thinking about the fantasy world that I that like the races or the religions or the themes that are in the the, the world I was building. And I would apply them to the philosophers and whatever. And that would get me through the essays. And, uh, you know, I did very well in philosophy because of that. And I realized that that was the way that I like to learn. But part of that and because in particular, philosophy was such a huge influence too, in unlocking just different um different questions, I guess, I had about just, uh, like, about about myself in particular, like, just um, the idea of, like, what it meant to exist, and, you know, the identity of a person, like, what constructs those elements, and, you know, I was a twin, and there was, uh, you know, the, the life was a little bit rocky, you know, in childhood, mm-hmm. and coming out of it, and so a lot of things were left unquestioned, even, so, of course, I didn't have the answers, and part of uh, deciding, you know, I want to create a comic book, I don't just want to potentially make this into a tabletop game one day. And right. I felt like that ship had sailed. And I was at a startup company at the time, and I was there for 10, going on 11 years. And I was like, you know what? Dow with this, you know? I'm going to do this. I'm going to jump all in. So I quit, and I um, I, I said, I'm going to give myself two years of just, I, I just want to work on this. And not just like work on the script because yeah I can write that sooner than that. But it's like I didn't just want to write the script. I wanted to learn um, all of the pieces that go into producing the the production of something, you know, Um, I'm a very I'm the kind of person that starts a lot of things but doesn't finish many like that was who Mm -hmm. I was (laughs) for most of my life. And so this was the first time and the first project where I was like, this one's getting finished, you know, Uh, whatever I have to go through, whatever I have to kind of whatever ordeals um, I want to get to the end. And. The story there is I planned it as a six-issue series, 22 pages each, and I got to, I think it was somewhere around a year and a half in, and I was like, there is no way this story is getting done in the next two issues, because I was on issue four at the time. <laughs> and I was like, I need to go back to the drawing board. And I had already, like, here, at, I, I'm burning away the, my my pool of money here, where I'm like, I got this money, I got this much time, you know? <laughs> right. But I was like, you know, but I'm not going to make it. And I didn't, I didn't want to... Uh, mangle the goal. And the goal for me wasn't, I got that point. It wasn't even like, let me just finish like the story. I got to say, like you said, like there's certain questions I started asking myself by getting into the head of the characters. And, um you know, a, a lot of writers will say the same kind of thing, right? Where you start writing a character and parts of you become part of the character. And it's not necessarily a trade for trade. Like the protagonist isn't me, but there's like pieces there that are me. And then there's pieces in the antagonist that are me. And there's pieces in the family that are me. So, When I'm writing for those characters, uh, I tap into the piece of me that I'm kind of unlocking and seeing how that piece of me would interact with this, you know, and um, so when I got to that mark where I was like, what do I do here? Do I stop? Do I try to force this? Do I rewrite? And I decided, look, I'm going to double this project size. I'm going to mm-hmm. increase every 22 uh, page issue to 30 pages. I'm going to go to nine issues. And so I've effectively changed, like, uh, yeah, doubled the size of this, uh, the project and the work that needed to be done. Obviously, the investment <laughs> that had to <laughs> go into paying for the art, the colors, all that stuff. But right. in my head, I was like, look, I'm either all in on this or I'm not because – um Because I needed to know that process, again, not just to get to the end of the writing of this or the production of this, but to know what it even costs to work out the finances behind it, work out how to change uh, aspects of my life so that I could pull this off. You know, you hear the stories of Robert Kirkman and Walking Dead and all the credit cards and all that stuff, right? And I mean, he took a chance, you know, and those stories were always inspiring to me. So I wanted uh, for my own stuff, for myself, I wanted to have a bit of that uh, memory to all of this. Sure. and, and, and then of course get to the end. I had to get to the finish line. Now I did reach year three and then I started panicking cause I was like, okay, I'm burning into now credit. <laughs> I need to get into, <laughs> I need to get an, like I went to an office job at the time and I was like, let me just restabilize things and just get the last three issues produced, you know? Cause like the first three years of that office job, it was just me making money so I could finish the last three issues, but I knew it was done, you know, by 2015. And, um, The luxury in Canada, which was like it was a negative, is that Kickstarter wasn't available in Canada until something like, I might have their year wrong here, but Mm -hmm. I only realized it was available somewhere around 2017, 2016, 17, something like that. I realized (laughs) they unlocked it for Canadians. And then I was like, this feels like everything's lining up here, man. (laughs) So I was like, time to uh, give this a shot. You know, I have this uh, crowdfunding wasn't new in 2018. People were doing it, you know, but Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was because I was like, "Okay, well, I figured out the whole comic production angle of things. I figured out how I want to write, how I want to uh, do deconstructive analysis on any kind of uh, media that's out there so that I can think about how people write. Um, And so I got I got super uh, super deep into that kind of stuff just like analytical deconstruction um, and that's part of my like schooling as well but I kind of I amped that up uh, because I had to get through my own hurdles and um, with the whole writing project and getting to the end so um, yeah once I launched I launched the first issue crowdfunding in 2018 I believe okay. um, and it was actually for the first trade at the time uh, that didn't make it um, and then I just launched the singles for two years. And I did it at an accelerated rate because I was trying to figure out how can I optimize crowdfunding? Because as a person who supports crowdfunders, you know, the wait time sort of sucks, man. (laughs) Wait time (laughs) sucks. The shipping sucks. Like I know all the pain points, you know, and I'm like, how do I make this better for people? You know, like how do I offer it? Like somehow offer more, but not take a, a complete hit where I can't make this sustainable. You know, like I still need to find some way of doing this where there's like an end goal in mind, that allows me to keep doing this or do more of this. And I'm a project manager in my real life job, you know, and um, right. I'm fairly decent at it. And so my brain only thinks that in, in modular fashion, so like, what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? And how do you make it better? How do you optimize? Right. And right. I think like this, this is kind of the pinnacle, like this really, this current campaign um, is tying into tapping into something that I haven't really seen anyone do, but it's, uh, it's kind of connecting back to, like, if you think about like back backup stories, you know, and, um, what it means like to have, like, you have like the main story, but then you might have like a few pages at the end. It's a backup story, you know? So I right. thought like, what, what, if, what if in crowdfunding, it could be like the main lineup book that's going to get the people already kind of, um, that have been along for the ride. They're going to want a piece of that, but then offer like a backup, uh, reward uh, as opposed to a backup story. And that's another jumping on point that might not, uh, be able to, uh, hold its own, and, it, and I did try one for the crew, of the Black Lion a comic. That's kind of the a, another reward option on Raven Evermore. I tried to run those as single campaigns, and they weren't picking up. And so, mm-hmm. uh, a way to kind of, I don't, I don't want to lose that project. I, I believe in it, and I believe that it's, it's t- it's tapping into what this world could be, the world building piece of this could be. And so, yeah, this th- that kind of marriage of ideas uh, came together. And I'm like, let's give this a shot. You know, it's another bit of um, a risk up front, but. Here's the other thing is like, I'm not worried about the risk up front, because uh, I'm pretty aggressive risk risk taker in general in (laughs) life. Um, And that's part of me like I started as an artist, so I know how to suffer. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like, uh, and and, and it's just kind of like I can live very frugally if I had to in order to make uh, in, in order to focus on the goals that I want to achieve. And so um offering this as a second option is like I have to go in with with uh, a bit more cash because I have to produce things that the goal might not cover but right. I know that I'm thinking about five years from now still right and the investment I'm making I, it, this is one way I've, I've kind of explained to family along the way and now they don't question me about any of this stuff but <laughs> because it's like how do you keep spending because it's a hobby some people just like spend money on hobbies right so like right. part of me thinks Hey, look, some people go to the, you know, play hockey up here. So that costs gear, right? Some people do rock climbing and that costs gear or they go to gymnastics. So they go, they, you know, people spend money on things they love and they enjoy. So for me, uh, the hobby is creating comics. I want to see my things come alive, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. But then the next step of that is, you know, how many people take an education to go uh, and get an education and they dump all the money into a college education or university education and they come out of it. And what do you have for it? You have a debt. Right. And then you have to right. kind of find something and you have to, you got to fill in that debt. And uh, so for me, it's like this project is just another education. You know, I don't think about it any other way. I'm going to, I'm okay with taking a loss up front mm-hmm. because I need to learn things along the way. And then after I've learned those things, I want to be able to uh, have a sustainable operation, you know, and I want to know that I'm not going to stumble when I turn the notch up. I want to, you know, I want to. I I mean, I have a future in my mind. It's just, I, you know, every step along the way is a pro is progress to that future. And, uh, that's good enough for me, you know?
0: So question then. So, you know, obviously, you know, this, this is, this is all you and, you know, you, you do have an artist that you work with. So, you know, this, this, this project is 100% you, um, you know, taking it from its origin, really up to the point where you are now on Kickstarter, so I guess this is almost kind of like a two part question. So, you know, has has this project caught any attention from like any any publishers, studios or even agents? And if it has, is that something that you're interested in doing, you know, kind of maybe getting that help? But you might have to sacrifice some of your vision and creativity or are you like I- I'm seeing this through to the end and I'm doing it my way and and my way alone? So that's an awesome
1: frigging question, and uh, it's a bit of a tough one. I think I have an answer in my head, but when I think about (laughs) it, I'm thinking I'm contradicting myself because I'm thinking about the thoughts after the thought. (laughs) Like, yeah, but (laughs) if the scenario was right, it'd be hard to say no to an opportunity. I'd have to think it through, but Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a control fiend (laughs) when it comes to (laughs) the vision, you know, and I haven't let go of this damn world since 2001. How am I going to give it up, you know, uh, to someone else to interpret? But but see, then you think about the Mike, Mike, uh, the Mark Millars of the world, or Millars, right? And you think about some of his properties didn't translate <laughs> exactly. He gave sure. up the reins. He let someone else interpret them. And, you know, he's still a happy dude. He's still going about his business, and he's just creating more work, you know? And so there's that world, too, you know, where I go, I'd be okay with someone interpreting it. Um, but I'd have to be in the mental state of like, I'm, I'm okay to let this one go. Cause I'm going to work on another piece, a, another thing, you know, and separate from this. And,
0: right. um, but, but still though, I mean, it, I mean, this really seems like such a very, I don't want to say like, per, I mean, I guess personal, I mean, this seems like a very, very yeah. personal project. I mean, is it going to be that, e- I mean, even if you, it okay, won't be easy, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, there's no way, even if you had two other projects, three other projects, I mean, this, this is your. I guess for lack of a better term, this is your child. Like you, you yes. created this and <laughs> it it blessed just tears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And you know what's funny? It's the, um, was it Brian K. Vaughn? I think it was Brian K. Mm-hmm. Vaughn. There's no way I'm comparing this to Saga, saga okay, or Saga. But it's Brian right. K. Vaughn. I think he has a, a, he says something, at it might be the opening essay in Volume 1, where it's like, this is untranslatable outside of the comic form, you know. And mm-hmm. when I read that, I, maybe it was around the same time too, but I loved the idea of it. You know, the idea that, here's a a person who has the direct contacts into Hollywood. <laughs> like he, mm-hmm. he, I'm not going to say it's easy for him to pitch something to turn into a movie, but it's way easier than, relative to a, You know, the vast majority of people who might want to try this. So him saying that uh, really stood out to me, you know, that the idea that, you know, it's okay that I might create something that I don't think is very translatable. Um, do I think like on the surface, and I, I should explain this a little bit. So on the surface, Raven Evermore, it, mm-hmm. I separate it into two kinds of stories uh, that exist uh, in parallel. So mm-hmm. there's that surface story, which if someone's just uh, just getting into the story and they're reading it from a surface narrative perspective, they're going to get a story from beginning to end. You know, it's going to have the, you know, the, the three act play structure, etc. But then there's like what I call the subtextual narrative. That's okay. where all the personal stuff goes. That's where all these little Easter egg pieces go that. Again, aren't super important from at the surface level narrative, but on a subtextual narrative, whether it's Easter eggs, whether it's like, again, those personal bits that I know what they mean to me, right. those pieces are there. And I mean, there's no way to translate them. But here's the thing you don't really need to uh, translate that surface, that subtextual narrative in order for that story to make sense. The surface story is the story. The subtextual mm-hmm. story, though, the sim that there's like a lot of symbolism woven between. A lot of the beats. Um, Again, that might come from Neil Gaiman, Sandman, like just the idea of like things always having double or triple meanings. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was wordplay going on, but is it obvious and explicit? No, (laughs) I didn't think it was important to make it obvious and explicit. You know, but it's there for people who want to go digging and and kind of uh, do deconstructive analysis, which is what I love to do. For those people who want to go delve for those things. I mean, I hope one day, you know, people will kind of find it fascinating to kind of connect the dots, you know, to some things and maybe uncover things that are planned for five years from now. Like all those pieces are there. Um, I spent so much time with this thing. It's crazy, man. Like how many things I I thought of. And I was like, one panel, one panel, one sentence that will make (laughs) sense. But there's another meaning there. And. It's like it's like a three issue arc for some side characters that I know exists out there, you know, and it's yeah. So maybe there's like that seed will be there in that panel. But, um,
0: yeah, I mean, I definitely think so, because, I you know, I think back to when, you know, when stuff like The Matrix came out, there was tons of deconstruction for that. I mean, you would walk into a bookstore and there's like five different books about, you know, The Matrix, The Matrix and religion, The Matrix, you know, and life and this and that Um. You know, very, very recently, you know, over on Disney Plus, you had uh, WandaVision where everybody, everybody is diving into that. You're looking at every single thing you're looking at, you know, you know, hey, why is the mailbox tilted that way? That obviously is a reference to this Is a reference to that. And I kind of think that's like almost like in, in the culture now is, you know, on the surface. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a good story. But, you know. And like you said, there's, there's some things, you know, in that subtext that are personal to you that most of us, 99% of us are going to miss, but there's going to be some of those other callbacks. Like, you know, you said you, you, you referenced the, the, the turtles, you know, you're going to find some turtle fans that, that like, see that. And it's like, wait a minute, why is this here? Is he just a fan of the turtles or, or does this mean something? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, now it's like, wow, I have, I have a really great story and now it's so much better. Because <laughs> you know, where's it going from here? Why was this here? Was this just here as an homage, or does this mean mm-hmm. something? And I mean, for me as a reader, i I eat that stuff up. I love it. and, <laughs> awesome, and yeah, and it's awesome. and I can't I really can't wait to 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 get my hands on this comic. But, you know, we're talking a lot about your vision and everything, you know, and you're the writer creator, but um, you are not the artist. So, You know, who was your artist? How did you find him? Because obviously you have a picture in your head of these characters in this universe. You know, how how do you find someone that is going to visually create that for you?
1: So it took me. I mean, I probably a year, a year or two of I was Mm -hmm. just navigating things like DeviantArt back in the day. That was like really like the really raw version of DeviantArt back back in 2008. Um, There was a site called ConceptArt.org, which i don't think is around anymore that one got i mean a lot of these places have shut down um but i was just scouring those sites for like people sharing art and then i would ping them and yeah at this point i was still of course i was learning the production of things i'm like what are even rates so, like uh, like what are the rates like what it was something like i i needed to have some sort of bandwidth like what you know what i could afford versus like what i had in my head right and man i stumbled on uh they Raven evermore artists i think it was on concept art uh was where i found them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Emmanuel Zersh Zer- Javier, and I hope I'm not mangling his name after uh, 12 years. <laughs> but but uh, he is. Oh, let me. I got yeah. Let me ramble a little bit about this guy because go for it. He. I mean, he changed my life. On, it, it, like, again, without hyperbole, because this was something where I went all in. I dropped my job for it, I, and it was like after I found him, after he signed in uh, to the six issue deal <laughs> at the time, and I was like, I, I had no idea it'd be more. I had no idea we'd be working together for five years, six years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't just Raven, Nevermore. We we worked on. Like, I ended up loving the dynamic with him so much mm-hmm. that we started doing these monthly uh single page uh comics for this magazine that's local to town um that was they all these like single they were one and done stories one page uh, it was like half page and then they went to full page but Mm -hmm. it was the last page of this magazine in town uh and it was the uh it all they were all stories set in the breach space setting and so it was a way for me to explore the setting beyond raven evermore while he was Mm. working on raven evermore and he worked so prolifically fast fast (laughs) <laughs> that it was so easy to just keep moving. You know, the momentum was insane sure. once we found that sink. The first issue, um, he still did the the sketches, you know, the thumbnails and stuff. Like, he, sure. he did pencils and he went to ink. So he did all of it. Um, but then at one point, because I have an art background and art training as well, it, it was easier for me to... I didn't want to impose my vision. That was never something I would do if I'm collaborating with someone. Like you, you give full range to that. Like that's part of the trust you you kind of have to nurture with the people you collaborate with. Sure. You've got to give that trust up, you know. Um, but at the start is like, I had a bit of a vision on the character design pieces, but it was easy for me to say, look, this is kind of where I think what, what this design is going or I can tweak it with a, like a mouse and Photoshop. I would just draw mm-hmm. over his sketches and then boom, it would be done and he'd just nail it. And after issue one, I just said like stop giving me pencils, you know, like just <laughs> just go straight, go give me thumbnails, let me see what the composition of the page is, <clears throat> and then just go straight to inks, you know. And of course, uh, he he loved that, right? Because I mean, <laughs> he just sure. gets to save all that time. And for yeah. me, it was like I just wanted to move faster. And he was and he was a fast mover. And mm-hmm. the fact that he could nail everything in my like it was literally I would see the pages and go, I couldn't have seen this differently like i feel like when i'm writing wow. i sort of have an idea of where the flow is going how when he pulls back when he goes in and we synced up so well that the way i wrote the script it was instantly translated exactly the way i i could have perceived it so i mean after 272 pages it was just like yeah i would i, I would work with him in an instant and he's ready to go so <laughs> more raven <ready to laughs> and more of this thing works out he'd be good to go and uh yeah it's fascinating like he's done some stuff uh for the mainstream as well i think he worked on um a, a clive barker book i think it was called okay. nightbreed um i don't know if it was from boom or but uh four-part series or but anyways mm-hmm. yeah he's done he's done a couple things out there and but i i always like i wish he got discovered you know because it's right. been a while now and i feel like i kind of i had him work on a 272 pages, so like, <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> kind of like put the brakes the handbrakes on while he was speeding on the highway there uh for the poor guy so Um, But I always wish that he uh, he got discovered because he oh, man, he deserved it. You know, he's the kind of artist that would be able to pull off the monthly easily uh, for one of the mainstreamers. And uh, I mean, hopefully there's still a chance out there. So he's uh, it's been uh, over a decade. He's uh, he's got a I think he's married. I don't know if he has a child already, but I mean, lives change in a decade, you know. But uh, yeah, I hope that uh, he gets another shot for sure.
0: Absolutely. And, you know like, you know, you, you did reach your your goal. Um, there's still time left, though. So I mean, that's one thing I, d- I definitely want to say is definitely head over to Kickstarter. You know, Raven Nevermore. That's, I mean, I just scrolled through and I found it. But, you know, look for Raven Nevermore. Like I said, for me, the art caught my attention. And I read the description, and I was like, well, I'm sold. <laughs> and you know, hopefully after hearing, you know, Nuno talk about really, you know, I mean, you didn't talk about your comic you pretty much talked about like your vision yeah there's just so much behind the scenes like
1: even the the term raven evermore right from edgar Allan poe like there's like gothic literature's huge influence Mm uh the poem itself is i'm not going to say it's part of the story but i'm not going to not say it's so (laughs) because that's a subtext there's all of it yeah so exactly there you go
0: So uh, before we wrap things up, you know, uh, let people know where they can find you, obviously on Kickstarter, but uh, where else can they find you, uh, reach out to you and see more of your work?
1: Yeah, sure. So you can find uh, the work I got going on on XEI.io. That's a website that uh, just showcases some of the books that um, have been uh, part of crowdfunding, uh, some of them that are going to be coming up. I do intend to expand that site a little bit more um, so that it uh, shows some stuff that might be a little bit further out, uh, some production, maybe bringing blogs back. Imagine that. Uh, So (laughs) maybe trying stuff like that. And then on Twitter, you can find me at at Nuno, X-E-I, N-U-N-O, X-E-I. There you go.
0: Awesome. Great. So uh, once again, I want to thank Nuno Shay for coming on, talking about Raven Nevermore. And, you know, Nuno, you are always welcome back on the show. Oh my uh, gosh. Thank you so much, man. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. And guys, again, thanks for listening. Do me a favor. Head on over to Instagram. Stuff You Don't Need to Know is there. I post pictures about the content that I talk about. Know it all. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you guys later.